Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about innovation and equity in global health. We're recording this podcast a few days before many involved in the fight against infectious disease are going to be coming together, Canadian visas permitting, in Montreal for AIDS 2022 to take stock of the AIDS response, particularly after the last two years of COVID and in the light of the new monkeypox outbreak. Well, a Shot in the Arm podcast will be there. We'll have daily episodes and I'll be joined by friend of the pod and fierce South African activist Yvette Raphael to look at where the science is heading and what the priorities are, particularly around the need for much greater global attention to optimizing effective diagnostic networks, which are essential backbones in bringing current and new pandemics under control. And I'm hugely grateful to this episode's sponsors, Roche Molecular, um, and particular because they've given me the chance to chat with two of its top physicians, Tamar Techlidze and Ben Labro, both of whom have had fascinating and hugely important careers in response to infectious disease. Tamar, Ben, welcome to A Shot in the Arm. Tamar, perhaps I could start with you. What do you do at Roche? First of all, thank you so much, Ben, for inviting me. Um, it's absolute pleasure for me to be here today. Um, so I work at Roche as a disease area partner, focusing on infectious diseases uh, and more specifically virology and transplant. Um, and just to very briefly mention that um, this um, this job, this position, the disease area partner, is the key role that brings our medical um, and scientific affairs strategy to life for clinicians and patients. Now, you and I actually have a bit of a uh, similar history, don't we? Uh, we've both participated and um, negotiated closely in UN declarations. You most recently at the UN Summit on Universal Healthcare as one of the lead negotiators for Georgia, your, your home country. What was that like? And I, and I guess my big question for you is, how did you survive the experience? Um. Yeah, first of all, thank you for this question, Ben. And indeed, it was fascinating to hear that we crossed our paths by participating in UN resolutions, very particular experience. Uh, first, and uh, one of the most important things I want to mention, it was a very rewarding experience. Uh, as, um, as I realized from the very start that uh, it could make a huge impact on our society. Um, as we all know now that, um, not now, but um, you know, some, of, some of the people maybe now that the health is the human right and everyone should have the access to the services, uh, medicines and vaccines at the time when they need it. And the uh, UN is the place uh, where the politicians are coming and such decisions could be made uh, in, you know, in the form of, for example, the resolution. Of course, then comes the next part that the resolution and the, um, you know, resolution should be uh, implemented in the respective countries for, you know, so for um, such uh, as UHC. Um, and uh, in terms of the second part of the question, how did I survive? I think largely because that. Um, it was just an uh, incredible feeling of being part of something this magnificent and being able to contribute. I also cannot stress that I had an enormous support from my colleagues at WHO, um, also my uh, Georgian mission itself and the Thailand mission because Thailand and Georgia were two co-facilitators of this resolution and uh, of course the member states. Uh, and I want also to shout out uh, about Japan because they're champions uh, in this regard. And um, they actually were also 
uh, very supportive through the process. So I think uh, that made us, you know, and there was a momentum. So we were so happy, uh, even if we left very late uh, most of the days at uh, the missions. But um, yeah. So. Yeah, especially if you didn't get any sleep during that time. I, I, I know that well. Um, and we're also joined, and I'm so thrilled because I've been really wanting to get uh, Ben Lebro onto the show. Benjamin Lebro, and of course, I'm a Benedict, so the two Bens. Um, now, Ben is the founder of Floating Doctors, a nonprofit medical team that works with coastal relief agencies, um, established coastal relief agencies, primarily in Central um, America on the um, Atlantic side. And I think what is so interesting about Floating Doctors is that they don't tell um, these relief agencies what they need to do. The relief agencies uh, tell them what they need, and then Ben and his colleagues uh, deliver that, um, and all by boat. Uh, ben, welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. Have I described Floating Doctors right? Uh, fairly accurately. Uh, um, we do try to not you know, kind of go, what you should be doing is which is a really annoying phrase, you know, that people in the humanitarian world often hear from other well-meaning people. Um, we kind of we ask what's needed, and then we go and do it. And you know, what, what's often needed is the most basic access to primary care and referral services and diagnostics. You know, which of course are the gateway to you know treatment for everything. Oh, terrific! And and you joined Roche Molecular last year, I think, like Tamar did. What's your role at the company? So I sit in the global medical affairs position, uh, primarily working on developing uh, new HIV and hepatitis tests and kind of acting as the intersection between, you know, kind of the scientific community who kind of, you know, work with our tests and elimination programs and uh, uh, local stakeholders. So we're recording this just before AIDS 2022. Um, it's uh, the Saturday and literally just hot off the press we have the news that Dr. Tedros at WHO has declared monkeypox a global health emergency. Um, and I don't suppose we can really do any podcast about global health without addressing monkeypox up front. And uh, Ben, I, I don't know what your thoughts are, um, your reactions. Have you actually encountered monkeypox in your practice over the years? Um, I've never actually encountered it before. Um, and uh, I'm kind of looking at our, you know, our current response and, you know, very low scale of testing. You know, it's early in the pandemic. There's long lines of people trying to get vaccines. New York State Health Department is prioritizing vaccines, first dose vaccines for people who haven't had it, even if they're not sure that those people are going to be able to get a second dose or the people that already had it would get a second dose, even though the FDA and CDC are advising them something differently. So I, I feel... I have a, a strange sense of deja vu, you know, for you know about two years ago, right now. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it, it's uh, it, it, and not just two years ago. I mean, I'm seeing people like Peter Staley, the folks from Prep for All, who are taking us back to the early days of the AIDS response. And I and I guess the one of the critical issues is going to be around stigma and dis discrimination and whether we prioritize those most at risk. Um, I mean, Tamar, your sense? Yeah, um, so I, I, I think I agree with Ben largely, um, especially with the deja vu. Um, but what I want to add here is that first, I'm happy to see that it's uh, declared earlier 
uh, than we experienced with COVID, which means that we may not repeat the same mistakes that we did and the panic and um, different type of messaging. I think the messaging to the society is extremely important so we do not lose the trust. Um, that concerns also the scientific community because you know sometimes you are saying something or publishing something or publishing too soon that you know also interferes with the trust of the you know also scientific society um but um like you said van um stigma uh, also it kind of comes uh, into this as well so that at least you know i had these feelings and um I, I really want to see that everybody is treated equally also in terms of you know how we're wording um things how we you know getting the messages across the uh, society so but again, I'm happy to see that we are acting on it, and I, I hope that we will um, take the lessons uh, from the previous experience and do it right this time. And I am sure that this is going to be something that is going to be top of mind in Montreal at AIDS 2022, which brings us on to the conference. And I, I, I guess my question for you both is, what are you most looking forward to? Data presentations, satellite meetings, um, networking, cups of coffee. What are you most excited about? I can go first. Um, yeah, I, I'm actually very exciting, uh, excited to go uh, for a number of reasons. This is one of my favorite conferences. I'm very passionate about infectious diseases and very specifically HIV AIDS. And that's the place where all these people from all around the world, uh, the people meaning, you know, scientists and uh, clinicians and uh, public health professionals coming and sharing the experience. What I'm looking forward now is to really share the lessons um, and best practices because because, um, you know, we've gone through a lot, especially with COVID and COVID and HIV also has so much in common. And I wish that we have uh, looked differently before and really learned the lessons from HIV and implemented in COVID. So I'm, I'm looking to see how the countries really coped with the epidemic and uh, what lessons they learned and shared that best practices and experiences. I also want to see how they're like, you know, uh, addressing the HIV um, transmission um, decrease, you know, what kind of strategies they have, how they're really reaching the last people, like last people, meaning in some of the even like, you know, thriving countries like United States, we have some problems uh, reaching those people that needs to be um, like reached, whether it's treatment or whether it's screening or whether it's in terms of the HIV or whether it's prevention. So um, yeah, all of those, I would say, Ben, uh, to network with uh, people, to chat, to learn, um, and all of the areas, of course, I want to see the new researches and uh, new best practices. And, um, and what about you, Ben? So for me, <clears throat> this will actually be um, not only my first time at this conference, this will actually be my first time at a large infectious disease conference like this. You know, for 10 years, I practiced almost exclusively off the grid in the middle of the jungle, you know, uh, in Panama and in the indigenous reservation there. You know, and I didn't really have either the financial wherewithal or, you know, opportunity to attend conferences like this. So you know, I'm finally going to be, you know, surrounded by other, you know, infectious disease, you know, specialists, you know, other, you know, activists, advocates, especially people working to really try, people who are really committed to trying to end this epidemic, you know, to turn this, you know, kind of, unfortunately, maybe a little forgotten disease these days, you know, legitimately into a rare disease. And I'm very interested to see what kind of 
innovation and ideas people have, and especially what Tamar said, reaching that last that last mile, you know, that yeah. last group of elusive, challenging to reach patients. Yeah, and that's particularly the case for the for the U.S. and the industrialized world. Now, for me, the most exciting thing about these AIDS conferences, and Ben, I I uh, extend the offer for you to join me on a walk round. Um, it's the community village, the global community village, where organizations of um, nonprofits, community-based organizations, even small networks and large networks get together and they have their own sort of um, uh, mini conference that takes place there. It absolutely influences and drives the main agenda, but it's so there's so much vitality and um, life there. And uh, I, I find that that being there really um, uh, reinforces it's like a long shot of caffeine. So uh, that that's what I'm looking forward to. I will but, definitely take you up on that. That yeah. would be awesome. But look, you know, it's our first in-person AIDS conference since COVID. Of course, the one previously was uh, cancelled and had to be virtual. Um and I'm thinking of a, a remark that my friend Michelle Barry from uh, Stanford University said, and she was an advent, uh, a really uh, ardent advocate for cancelling the the first infectious disease conference after COVID broke, and that was the the Croy conference, uh, conference on uh, retrovirus retroviruses and opportunistic infections, because she couldn't think of a greater calamity. Than, a, than the bunch of the world's leading infectious disease experts, uh, policymakers, and activists coming together uh, at what might be a super spreader event. And, and I know that many of um, a shot in the arms listeners and viewers um, have wanted me to ask people what their thoughts were about this. Um, are you worried about something similar happening uh, in Montreal? And what protections will, 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 you, be, will you be taking? Particularly, will you be wearing a mask? So, uh, you know, that's, I think that's a very valid concern. Anytime 8,000, 10,000 people from all over the world travel through international airports and then gather together under one roof, you know, you're really, you know, they're really setting the stage for, you know, creating possibly a super spreader event. I'm going to, it may be a little bit different now in terms of the, I'm, I'm guessing the vaccination and boosted rate among you know these attendees is going to be fairly high hopefully um i did attend a conference uh earlier this year uh or sorry earlier this summer um in london um and i did know it was there was not very much masking and as a consequence a number of people yeah uh, that i knew of actually did contract covid there so i just received my fourth booster you know before attending that you know and i wore a mask you know i like to be a man with a belt and suspenders um, and I think this is one where, especially infectious disease people, you know, people working you know, in with infectious disease, you know, kind of, you know, infectious diseases, we, we really do know how to, you know, be responsible about protecting ourselves and others. And I do think it is important, you know, that we try and, you know, kind of, that we try and set an example. And I'll certainly be wearing a mask, uh, you know, under any circumstances in which I might have proximity or which I might you know, be you know, conceivably, you know, placing people or myself at risk. Uh, what about? Sorry, Ben. Uh, what about you, Tamar? Will you be Will you be masking up? 
Yes, um, and very. This is a very good question, um, uh, Ben, and um, especially what we've seen also in the past. I, in fact, I was uh, going to Croy meeting. I was in a cab uh, and really thinking, should I be going? Um, and that's when my I was at, at the time working at the UC Berkeley uh, when my colleague called me and said, you know, it's canceled and you need to like you know turn it on. So she knew that I was driving to the airport. So and I was really happy and so um, like you know, thinking, okay, thanks God, because I don't think even though I was so excited to go for, for another reason, obviously. So uh, like the, the answer to this will be that yes, I will be masked. Um, my experience also, I attended the ASM meeting in West Palm Beach also like recently, and uh, it was a requirement um, that mm. we had to be masked. And most of the people were masked, and I hardly heard even a lot of us actually from Roche attended that anyone really got COVID and I think that was, you know, primary reason too. Other precaution, all of us know kind of how to assess risk, right? So especially us in infectious diseases. So, in, you know, if you are near to someone that is has chronic infection, like chronic conditions uh, or like elderly in your family, you should be extra careful by testing yourself more frequently. Uh, I'm taking actually tests. We have our wonderful um, also test that I can have with me and <laughs> test it very frequently, um, whether I um, you know catch COVID or not, but I'll be masked, yes. Well, and then getting to the, uh, the actual science, um, I wanted to just get your thoughts on some of the uh, the data and the attention that I think is going to be very interesting. And it's all around the use of long-acting uh, injectables of antiretroviral medicines. Um, and basically, this really represents a move from popping a pill every day to having an injection every month or every few months. Um, and this could be both for treatment uh, or as PrEP, as prevention, pre-exposure prophylaxis. And I think that has the potential really to make huge, huge impacts in the way we manage HIV, assuming we can get the access questions in developing countries right. And I just wondered from you both how you see diagnostics being a part of this, because obviously if we are um, injecting antiretrovirals systemically into someone and they're having a longer effect than rather than, you know, needing to be uh, taken daily, things could get very interesting and complicated. So I just wonder what your thoughts are about where diagnostics fit in to this, this brave new world. Um, I can go first. Um, so um, diagnostics in general, and uh, we all um, agree on that, has like you know play a crucial role at every step of the disease management, which includes the screening, the diagnosis, uh, monitoring, and prognosis, of course. And HIV um, case is not different. In fact, uh, we like in um, in this field to talk about the uh, continuum, care continuum, which uh, which prime status natural continuum actually. Um, so, which means that uh, we, you know, we need to screen the person, identify whether this person is infected or not, and uh, link them. If they are infected, link them to the um, to the care, and if they are not infected, link them to the uh, to the prep. And this way, really, like you know, maintain uh, to decrease the HIV new cases that numbers down. Uh, now, no matter which way we go, whether we link the person to care or to the um, uh, to the prep, we need to do the testing. So testing is an absolutely first step, and not only as a, as like you know first step and so to screen someone, but also to monitor the person, and especially that is uh, 
uh, the case during the PrEP, uh, whether you are on oral PrEP or carbotergravir, which is the long acting, but you, the frequency differs. Uh, when you are on oral PrEP, the recommendation is to do the testing every uh, three months, but if you're on carbotergravir, then the testing is um, every two months. So absolutely, testing is a must. So we have to, uh, you know, be very well uh, prepared and aware what kind of testing also. It's not only the testing because that's um, nuances that uh, we are also, you know, working very hard, um, you know, along with um, CDC to get the messages across the healthcare providers and educate the patients as well. And I want to come on to that in a bit more detail. Um, ben, your 38,000 foot level about how uh, the long acting um, and diagnostics will, will work together. So for, you know, for me, and especially with my background, you know, it's such a game changer. You know, if you've got someone who's, you know, employed, college educated, they have a good paying job, you know, they have health insurance, you know, they're, you know, they see a billboard, they get tested, you know, uh, you know they come up positive, uh, you know, they get on treatment or, you know, they go, hmm, I'm you know, a little at risk. You know, uh, maybe I'm going to get on prep or talk to my provider. A lot of those people have been gotten already. And what I always think of, you know, from the high level is what about like my indigenous patients who are scattered across 10,000 square miles of jungle with no roads, no transportation, no communication infrastructure at all. You know, I have patients you know, in that area with HIV, and it is so difficult for them to, you know, be able to adhere to you know, their treatment. And especially now that PrEP is just starting to be available at all in that region. And uh, very, very difficult, you know, for you know, patients to actually be able to come in, you know, to take a pill every day, to come in, you know, really frequently. So the longer acting PrEP, yeah, is I mean, it's, it's just so critical, you know, and I think it's really going to be a game changer. But, you know, without appropriate testing, you can't implement it well. So you've got this awesome tool, you know, but one of my board members always used to say, if it can't be measured, it can't be improved. If we don't know your viral load, we can't adjust your meds. Mm. If we don't know the prevalence, then we can't, you know, adopt policy responses. And so this is where not only is, diagno is testing, diagnostics, diagnostics, <laughs> um, the gateway to everything, it's not just the gateway to treatment, it's the gateway to knowing what kind of treatment strategies, what kind of intervention strategies are going to work at the local level, the regional level, the global level. So and also, I, I, I'll just add one moment, uh, I'm sorry, Ben, uh, to, to the Ben's point that, you know, uh, undiagnosed patients, and it's very particularly relevant now, um, can unknowingly transmit um, the disease to others, right? And also early diagnosis can help to prevent uh, or even stop the outbreak. So it's um, testing is absolutely critical. Yeah, this isn't about just managing the epidemic. This is how, this is how we end it. We have to know who has it. So, yeah, and, you know, we have to know who has it and we have to be able to put people on PrEP safely and effectively in order to stop this. And without diagnostics, we can't do any of that. So I'm, I'm finally getting a word in edgeways. Thank you. Um, I We had such a brilliant conversation preparing for this podcast. In many ways, I wish we could have just recorded it. Um, and you are both hugely passionate and informed about uh, the role that diagnostics had to play. Tamar, you spoke about something that I'd, I'd love to get you to break down for us. I mean, and, 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 and excuse me for asking a few stupid questions here. 
first. Now it's a good question, Ben. Oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> you know, diagnostic pathways, um, the backbone to an AIDS response. Obviously, you need to know you're HIV positive. You need to know how much virus is in your bloodstream. But could you walk us through what you mean by a diagnostic pathway? Um, what I, you know, previously said on the diagnostic pathway, I would uh, bring it back here, which is absolutely crucial, which is the status neutral continuum again. So the testing is number one, and that's the diagnostic pathway to identify, screen someone and then link to the uh, appropriate place, whether it's care or the PrEP. Uh, but also, it is very important to bring here the, uh, I think that what you are referring to, Ben, is the triple A plus S that I mentioned during our conversation. So when we are doing any uh, big projects, you know, the public health project, it's extremely important that we, you know, strategize well from the start and also think of the access, availability, affordability, and also equally importantly, sustainability. That's why I say triple A and S. And if any of those are missing, uh, or for example, it's accessible, but not affordable, um, then you know you cannot really do anything. Or if all, all the three A's are there, accessible, affordable, available, but down the road in a year, it's like this pro project or program is not sustainable, then we come back to the same issue. So it's it's collective effort. It's of course the political will, number one, um, that we have to have political will to change something. And I always say, I can't really stress enough um, that we need the paradigm shift. Anything we do, and especially in infectious diseases, it's not incremental change, like you know, changes, but really to like a swift changes, like paradigm shift. And um, you know, always keep in mind those three A's plus S. Um, and I can't stress access, access, access. Whether it's medicine, whether it's services, whether whether it's vaccines for everyone, and at the time when they need this. And one last point, uh, because sometimes people think, oh, does it mean like you know the free services? How can you get the free? How can some of the countries survive? You know, giving some of the free services? No, it's not free. You know, it, it should not drive people to the poverty because we saw that even pre-COVID, um, I'm sure you know these numbers, but I just want to you know bring it back here. Hundred million people before COVID were pushed to the poverty because of, you know, um, because of the problem of accessing the medical, I'm sorry, like, you know, they, uh, because of the accessing medical care. So this is not acceptable. At that time, it was also said that if we continue the same speed, two thirds of the people will be, you know, um, driven to the poverty or like having this problem. So we definitely need to make, you know, like swift and um, big changes and collect. Yeah, and Ben, um... My my sort of second stupid question is to you. I think many of us jack of all trades policymakers, but maybe don't really fully understand what a diagnostic, uh, the implementation implementation of effective diagnostics should look like. I mean, I think there's a a touch of us that um, we 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 all think it's a bit like Star Trek with a, a what is it a transcorder or something that. You, you know, you can you can just get everything you need through um, a point of care test. If you were to walk us through what it happens after someone has their blood drawn in order to one know whether they have HIV, and then that's you know someone who does have HIV and is on treatment, and then comes in and has uh, their blood drawn to see how much viral load how much virus they have in their bloodstream. How does all of this work? What happens behind the scenes? So this is where, 
you know, the context in the developed world takes for granted that there's a certain level of infrastructure that exists that allows, as you say, all of this backstage, you know, behind the scenes stuff to just happen. You know, so you go into your know, lab or your doctor's office and you get your blood drawn. And in the U.S. now, like a patient wouldn't think about what happens after that. And usually neither does the physician. The, it gets picked up, the blood gets sent to a lab, something, you know, something happens to the blood and then a result comes back and the provider, you know, kind of and the patient can then take the next steps. But both in the U.S. and in you know, a lot of other parts of the world, it's not always as simple as that. You know, the blood has to be once the blood is drawn, then it has to be kept in cold chain storage. It has to be centrifuged. It has to be sent somewhere while maintaining it to a certain temperature, yeah, you know, where it can be tested. You know, that laboratory has to be maintained, certified, <clears throat> people trained. I mean, there's this massive, massive you know amount of behind the scenes infrastructure that has to exist. So when people are making policy. It's often really tempting and seductive, really, to forget that all that stuff exists and create policies for areas that don't always have that. And not just in the developing world, but in more rural parts of the U.S. or underserved you know, metropolitan areas of the U.S. And they go to put policies in place that aren't practical because they, they address one part of it. Like, we're going to send all of these tests there, but without addressing the fact that there's no way to get the blood from where it's drawn to the laboratory. And so this is you know, where diagnostics you know, needs to not just include, here's the test. Diagnostics also, I believe, needs to you know, get involved in the practical strategies under a variety of circumstances of how to implement those diagnostics in a meaningful way, which is always more complicated than we'd like to believe. Do you know, it, 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 it makes me think, I mean, so many of us thought that uh, with the emergence of point of care testing, um, where basically you, you, you almost have an on-off um, uh, answer, somewhat like the uh, home tests for COVID that we have, that, that that would be the end of it, that that would cover the diagnostic question. But that isn't the case at all. And I think there are huge implications for global access strategies. Um, it's really made me think. But Tamar, if I might come to you, we've spoken about the U.S. and that the needs are still very much there in the U.S., in marginalized populations, in those last mile communities. What do you think are the obstacles to getting policymakers, providers, and indeed patients um, aware of what needs to be done from a diagnostics pathway perspective? There are so many barriers. Um, we uh, we really need to get everybody um, together, like the main uh, like policymakers, the other like you know main stakeholders, um, like whether that's governments, uh, whether that's community activists, uh, or like the agencies. Um, I did mention government, of course, the um, like also the industry, um, to really think um, together and help each other out because, um, as I said, you know there are you know, quite a number of barriers. For example, um, the information and the knowledge, yeah, whether that's um, healthcare providers or uh, patients. You know, more specific example, 
So we know that the CDC just released this new guidelines, the PrEP guidelines that we're thrilled to see because it has so many uh, improvements uh, and uh, the PrEP um, as like, you know, Cabotegravir is uh, is also considered and, you know, p- possible adverse uh, events if particular diagnostics are not done. And also guidelines says that anyone who can prescribe PrEP, uh, I'm sorry, who can prescribe, who, who, who is, um, who has the right to do the prescription license to have the prescription to do the prescription can uh, prescribe prep, but you know those are like you know people that we need to educate. Um, those HCPs, nurse practitioners have never done this before, so they have to know not only how to prescribe and or which prep to prescribe, but also um, how to do the diagnostics. That's absolutely crucial. Um, so also uh, we see other barriers that, such as stigma still. Uh, you will be surprised here in the U.S. to see what is the level or the, you know, how many people are stigmatized still um, to mention that, you know, they want to get on PrEP. Um, because maybe we need to also, um, you know, revisit some of the wordings that we've done before. Um, ben and I, uh, Ben Labro and I were discussing the other day, you know, maybe just saying somebody is at risk is not a good word because maybe that's not like, you know, the uh, very positive, uh, like, you know, way of asking people, uh, are you at risk? Does it really mean, mean, mean that it's something negative? Because some people perceive that way and maybe that prevents them to um, to have the, um, you know, conversations um, with, with, the, uh, with the providers. So also there are some challenging algorithms for many um, that needs to, um, you know, looked at and uh, we need to help um, these algorithms to, you know, carry the message for the primary care physicians now and the other people that will be prescribing PrEP and monitoring for PrEP. Um, also, uh, we see that some, you know, there is some lack of, um, again, like experience and confidence in those people to do so. So a lot, lot of things needs to be done. Um, um, uh, thanks, Tamara. And I, uh, ben, if I could ask you to pick up on that. So education issues with practitioners, uh, and as you You've both pointed out these may not be in you know centers of excellence. These prescribers may be in rural communities. They may be general practitioners. They may be nurse practitioners. But there's also education around payers and policymakers. Yes, I mean the U.S. is extraordinarily complicated when it comes to financing healthcare. Um, but how is the understanding in the different na- the different groups of payers playing out? Do they understand the role that diagnostics need to play? And frankly, are they paying for it? So a really good question. You know, Tamara and I learned a, you know learned a lot about this. A lot of which was sort of surprising. You know, over the last few months, you know, when we've been really trying to dive more deeply into this and see where the disconnects are occurring, and you know, really reinforcing what Tamara said. You know, increasingly, it's prim- it's primary care providers, and increasingly, not just primary care physicians, but nurse practitioners, APNs, you know, PAs, who both have the right and you know the opportunity, you know, to really prescribe prep. But I actually saw an interesting article from last last July, so fairly recent, looking at what kind of prep education is provided in medical school, and essentially in the very telling that this article was actually in the journey the journal of primary care community health i thought was very interesting um and i said also i'll summarize by saying woefully inadequate they were saying it's you know really inadequate and the few schools that were really you know emphasizing this found that their graduates were far better prepared you know to you know to really help the 
1.2 million people who could benefit from PrEP actually get on it instead of only the 50,000 or so that are actually taking it right now. And when it came to the payers, we found a really big disconnect in speaking with infectious disease specialists, you know, heads of programs, people that really knew. We found that there was both at the primary care level and often at the specialist level, you know, a real assumption that, you know, certain tests in certain scenarios that are federally mandated to be paid were not being paid, you know, that these claims by physicians were being, you know, were being denied. And physicians often, you know, were trying to appeal it and with their tiny limited bandwidth, you know, trying to go through that process. And we found that what was at least one thing that was happening was a lot of the payers weren't updating their payment guidelines, you know, sometimes for several years after new guidelines would come out. And this was just a great example to us of, well, here's a big knowledge disconnect. You know, this stuff is not being prescribed or, the, you know, these diagnostics, the gateway, you know, to these are not being done because the perception is that this test will not be paid or, you know, or if the test is ordered, it will just be denied, which it often was. And so we've done things like creating kind of uh, CMEs and webinars and, you know, sending out dear doctor letters and template le template appeal letters that physicians could use. And we've also really, you know, tried to reach out to the payer groups to, you know, ask them to update their payment guidelines and just try and streamline this process. Yeah. And when we were talking earlier, Ben, you you had referred to, and this may be something that comes from the two years of COVID, but the issue about burnout um, in infectious disease specialists. Sure. Um, how big of a problem is that? And what, what would be the implications for this uh, continuing medical education, CME, uh, around these you know rapidly evolving advances now in HIV? So I... And you know, it's been a you know a couple of months since I checked. But when I last checked, uh, infectious disease was the specialty with the highest burnout rate. Probably not surprising, you know, post COVID. But the implications of that are really significant because another thing that Tamar and I discovered was, and you know, we you know we included primary care providers, including nurse practitioners, in a lot of our information gathering. We really wanted to hear not just what the specialists knew, but the people on the front line, you know, the trusted stakeholders, the primary care providers working with patients. And we found that a lot of primary care providers don't seem confident, you know, in prescribing PrEP or working with PrEP. And so they would refer their patients to an infectious disease specialist, not for anything really, but to just talk about PrEP. And that creates a really dangerous bottleneck. Here you have this overworked and burnt out specialty with a lot of people dropping out of it. Um, and you know, the primary care providers who do have both the right and the capability, they have the, you know, the knowledge available, you know, they're you know, not feeling confident and sending these patients to this narrow bottleneck of burnt out, overworked infectious disease specialists. And I think that has really serious implications for access. And it's certainly really reinforced Tamar and, and my kind of you know, belief that pushing knowledge and education you know about this out to the primary care level is going to be absolutely critical in helping make primary care the real front line you know for this mm -hmm. on a positive note um u equals u undetectable equals untransmissible that's something that's going to be also a huge issue at uh, AIDS 2022, as it rightly should be, a movement of science led by community, particularly the Prevention Access Campaign. And 
I've really found this to be an extraordinary example of community leadership. And it would seem obvious that a backbone of the U equals U paradigm um, is going to be around effective diagnostics uh, provision and um, availability. And I just wondered from your from both of your perspectives, how you see U equals U changing people's understanding of diagnostics. Tamar, maybe I could start with you. This is actually a great question. Um, and it's the great concept or notion U equals U because we, we know that, uh, you know, with this, uh, if you are undetectable, that means that you are not transmitting the virus and the patients know that and they're excited to get the treatment. But in order to know that you are undetectable, you need to be tested, right? So, and that's, you know, uh, make them also adherent to the testing. So to check the next time and see, you know, whether they, they what, is, what is their viral load so they can prevent the loved ones from uh, get the HIV um, or the community, you know, around them, um, to, you know, to, to, from the transmission. So I think, um, you know, U equals U change in a way that they, they feel that more people know the value of the diagnostics uh, in this field. And uh, we're really glad to see this, whether that's... Um, of course, the healthcare professionals, they knew uh, the value, but now the patients are very well aware um, how, how important the testing is, um, you know, to, to check whether the treatment is failing or whether they are so, un, like, you know, the level is so undetectable that they can, not so undetectable, undetectable that they can um, leave as, like, you know, as normal. And, and, and at the end of the day, it's the viral load test um, after, obviously, super effective antiretroviral therapy that tells you that you're undetectable. So um, one other question about the role of diagnostics in the management of HIV and indeed um, uh, a whole platform of uh, infectious diseases. And that's back to this question of stigma and discrimination. And um, it strikes me that, um, you know, the moment that a person either seeks or is instructed, um, or has uh, uh, an HIV test taken, um, or a viral load test taken for that matter, it potentially puts them at very direct risk of stigma and discrimination. And, and I wonder, as practitioners, how you have thought about how to protect people and how to make availability of diagnostics as easily and as accessible and with without any stigma and discrimination. Uh, are there strategies that you've seen that work, um, that, that policymakers should be aware of? Ben, what about you first? So absolutely. This, I have a really good example for this, actually. In the indigenous population um, that I primarily work with, uh, there is actually a very large amount of MSM behavior, especially you know, in the teen years but it's not talked about at all. And so it's an odd, it's an odd situation where there's a huge amount of MSM behavior, but almost no one would identify, you know, uh, like as you know, gay or trans or anything other than hetero. And uh, you know, to even offer someone an HIV test, especially in small communities where people all know each other, you know, it was essentially like saying, you know, oh, you're gay, you know, or if it's a woman, Oh, you're unfaithful. There was immediate stigma attached to this. And we tried all manner of strategies. And in that particular setting, one of the strategies that we found was the most effective was 
let's just test everybody, everybody, even people that we were, there's no way this person, you know, has it, uh, there, you know, any risk at all, still test them. Because if everybody was tested, it was very hard, you know, for, there was no segment of the population being singled out. And obviously, you know, that's, that required us in a resource limited setting, obtaining tests for people that didn't necessarily need them in order to protect the people that did really need the test from stigma. And that's a good example of the difference between you know, a 20th century solution, which was we've got this massive epidemic, lots of people, we've got to optimize you know, our resources to get the most bang for our buck, only test the people that really need it. You know, we, had, we essentially had to be willing to expend the resources to expand that testing, even to some people who didn't strictly need it, you know, in order to protect the people who did need it from, you know, kind of from being stigmatized. And those kinds of solutions, you know, being willing to expend resources is, that's really what's needed with this last mile. You know, it's too easy to fall back on, oh, we're trying to be efficient and optimize, and those are important goals. But you also have to be willing to know when, you know, we've paced ourselves for 24, 25 miles of this marathon. Now it's the last mile, we got to sprint. And, and Tamar, I, I, I don't know if you could look at this question through the lens of Eastern Europe and, and, and Central Asia. Um, your experience as a, a practitioner in Georgia, um, where were the, the sort of the pain points in, stig in, in stigma and discrimination? And, um, and that, that process of someone getting a, a, a diagnostic test? Um, yeah, it's it's a huge topic, stigma. Um, and um, but there is there are some ways. I'm I'm a huge believer that um, if you put your mind into this, you can find for this whether it's specific communities or the community at large, how to destigmatize that very specific topic. And I have a very own example also, like um, Ben mentioned also from his personal experience. But for me, it was hepatitis C elimination program that I was uh, very much involved in uh, that we were doing for Georgia and the prevalence of hepatitis C unfortunately uh, was very high over seven percent and uh, that you know that was the same issue we had um, stigmatized people that didn't want to be screened uh, it, it was really hard to get people screened even when we you know we're offering this highly effective treatments that would cure them you know the treatment that cost like um, over eighty thousand. That was what 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 we were hearing and what everybody knew at the time. Uh, but still, you know, people were shying away to come and get screening. Um, but then um, we did this huge campaign uh, of you know information sharing with the community and with the uh, with the population. You know, a lot of policymakers were coming out and saying, um, you know, like what 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 does it really mean um, to like being fact being infected? And not only policymakers, I, I mean more like you know the government officials and the celebrities saying that I'm HIV HCV infected, and they were putting you know on the uh, on the hands like you know um, stop it. HCV and you know it was really viral everybody was putting in and then people started to come out and happy to say that oh I was uh, HCV uh, infected and now I'm cured and that was another viral campaign that saying oh I was cured so so the other people can hear and come so my point is that uh, we really need to think like creatively. I was reading the publication the other day and I was astonished here in the United States um, over like you know it was in highest risk. Um, women, um, only 13% are um, taking PrEP. Um, and when they were asked why, 
um, the response was because of stigma, not education or not like, you know, some another here also like, you know, that's, um, you know, that's one of the barriers for some particular like, you know, community, um, which is really um, alarming, right? So we need to think creatively and see how we can um, do this. I, I said earlier in the conversation, maybe stop labeling uh, people at risk, you know, saying at risk versus not at risk. And to Ben's point, maybe we need to screen um, all. Mm-hmm. Get that extra mile and um, really, you know, after we've all, got to think yeah we've got to think creatively about about how we tackle stigma and discrimination and i really think the diagnostics have a key role to play there but ben sorry i interrupted you not at all i was you know mass screening pro it was so strange i was looking the other day i was looking at mass screening and all the way back in 1966 in jama you know there was an article talking about a mass screen. we need to mass screen you know tuberculosis and i was just like oh, here we are again you know this you know the 20, you know, our current model trying to target, you know, our, our screening for the people that we somehow label at risk, you know, versus we got to test everybody. We've got to find the inapparent disease, what that's called. And, uh, yeah, I couldn't agree with tomorrow more the stigmatization, you know, really, you know, is a huge barrier, but when everybody gets tested then it's hard for there to be a stigma. And it's still like here in the United States, um, you know, we, we, we see the statistics, one out of, I think it's seven people, they don't know they're even infected. And we keep seeing over like 30,000, I think it's 36,000 uh, new cases every year. How that, that can be possible? How? When we have the highly efficacious treatment on the markets and we have highly efficacious prep on the market. Yeah, and we have, um, you know, as we're seeing with COVID, we have and it's a good thing that we have so many home tests now, but we sort of don't know from a public health perspective how many people are being infected and with what variants. Well, I, this is, as I expected, a very forthright and fascinating conversation. Um, I, I wonder, have I missed anything? Is there anything that we should add that our listeners and viewers would find useful? Um, and as we can help policymakers drive uh, an effective diagnostics uh, network optimization strategy. I do want maybe all the listeners, and especially, you know, hopefully this will be something for folks to noodle about before this conference uh, and maybe chat about, is this whole concept of at-risk. Yeah, it's the at-risk labeling is so stigmatizing and it's so incorrect, you know, in my opinion. Um, when I looked at a lot of the research about who's actually at risk, you know, in uh, so many different studies that I could find, you know, especially in resource limited settings, sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere, your number one risk was not engaging in MSM behavior or intravenous drug use. Your number one risk was to be a, you know, heterosexual female in a monogamous relationship because of the such a high level of extramarital infidelity. And I think tomorrow in my position is essentially, if you are an intravenous drug user, course but if you're sexually active at all you're at risk you're potentially at risk then that's the reality if you ever have sex at all you're potentially at risk well it remind it reminds me um tomorrow of uh, these fraught negotiations um after midnight in un buildings um and from my time what we ended up using was replacing at risk by communities that are most affected and um, it didn't really capture the urgency of the moment, 
but it uh, it certainly helped in um, preventing uh, those that would want a more sort of uh, prohibitory and uh, um, uh, let's say more of approach rooted in persecution from 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 taking hold. But from your side, anything in this conversation that we've missed that you think folks would find interesting? Maybe uh, one um, thing that I would add um, at the end is that I would love to talk to my colleagues how we can, you know, encourage um, sexual history conversations between um, between uh, healthcare providers and patients to really help patients to uh, speak more freely um, about this and. Um, I think that we are lagging behind there as well. In my, from my, you know, personal experience, also sometimes even I, I don't have, um, you know, opportunity to discuss with my own OBGYN some of the, you know, specifics of the sexual history because maybe I'm perceived not at risk because I'm married with four children, and but maybe I need to know more about, you know, what what is out there, what like, you know, what kind of prep, etc. So uh, if in my personal experience, this is this happening, you know, so frequently, I'm sure it's happening in everybody's experience. So we have to maybe also draw our attention, you know, how can we really, um, you know, help this, um, this area um, to advance so that we have the experience um, to talk about, I mean, like, you know, we, we have the opportunity to speak with the healthcare providers on the sexual history more. more so, at, so as we're at the conference, what are your escape routes? Whether one is attending the conference in person or virtually or really can't be bothered with it at all, what's keeping you sane and, um, uh, and, um, uh, uh, comfortable at the moment? Is it a book? Is it a movie? Is it a binge-worthy uh, series you're streaming? Um, ben, what are you, what's keeping you sane? You know, there's actually, a, I have a phrase that uh, a friend of mine in Panama, he's a C5-6 quadriplegic. Uh, he's about 75. He's lived down in Panama, you know, for about 20 years. And uh, he always says, if you're not laughing, it just means you're not paying close enough attention. And that phrase really helped me out a lot the, you know, over the last couple of years, the absurdity of so much, including of a lot of the things that were horrible. There's an absurdity to it. Yeah, I've gotten interested in the Dadaist movement because of this. But as outside of that, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate to live you know, right next to a very large state park uh, you know, in Southern California that still has mountain lions, still has, you know, still wild. And uh, when it just gets to be too much, you know, time to open the back gate, disappear for disappear for a few hours and how about you tomorrow i love what ben said now about you know uh, also living in california sounds so exciting <laughs> yeah it's one of the places that um i would you know what, what would be happy to live as well but i'm happy in washington as well but um what keeps me sane i think i'm very optimistic um in general and um i i always have a hope um and i see also people so many people are so passionate um, that sometimes, you know, a lot of times actually I'm having a goosebumps when I hear people talking, they are like just sometimes in the past, I would even wonder like, you know, how it's like their priorities, the other people's lives are priorities. And that makes me very hopeful that, you know, together we can do it because I, I build, I'm a big believer of the teamwork. And um, I, I think that's together like in teams and, kind of, you know, collectively, we can um, do some great things. And um, we see also now lights, right? Remember like a year ago, we 
almost didn't see lights, you know, at the end of the tunnel. It was scary. But again, we saw it because, you know, people really stood up, worked hard um, together, and we overcame something that, like something that we now not as afraid, like which is called COVID. So we can be a resourceful species when we want to be. When we want to be, yes. I like that. <laughs> well, thank you both very, very much. This has been an incredibly valuable Cook's tour um, of uh, the role that diagnostics play in infectious disease, but also really to just get a sense of the things that really drive you. So, uh, so thank you both very, very much indeed. Thank, oh, you. thank you so much for having us. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you to Tamar and to Ben, and thank you to Roche Molecular. Thanks also to our director, Eric Espera of Newstock Media. You can find us on all podcast platforms and, of course, on our YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe and give us five stars. If you are at AIDS 2022, mask up and stay safe. Have a great week and a safe week, everyone.